We are continuing, and this is just week number two in this series on 1 Peter. And last week, we just simply looked at the writer, the receiver, and the reason. Who wrote the book? Who is he writing the book to? And what is the purpose of the book? Peter, apostle of Jesus, was writing. He was writing to the the folks that are in what is now modern-day Turkey, a church that was experiencing suffering and trials of many kinds. Why was he writing it? He was writing it to let them know. When hard times come to our faith, meaning when our faith goes through tough, difficult times, our most natural inclination or temptation is to walk away from the faith. Peter, 1 Peter tells us that when these difficult times come for our faith, tells us that we can actually stand firm. Now, we can stand firm not because we have a great, robust faith, not because we are so powerful, not because we are so faithful. We can stand firm because there is a God who indicates that He is faithful, and He is more than enough to sustain us. His grace really is sufficient, not just on a daily basis, but on a weekly, monthly, yearly, and even lifetime basis. God would go so far as to say this. Jesus would let us know that God was putting people into the hands of Jesus. And the ones that the Father had given to Jesus, no one could pluck them out of my hands. We can't even crawl out. As much as we even try to run away from God, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus will hop down and He will chase after us. He will win. He'll turn us around. We'll get to see His beauty. And we'll fall on our knees and repent again. I don't know where you are today in your faith, but I do know that what today is going to come, what Peter is going to share with us 2,000 years ago, it rings just as loud today as it did when he wrote it some 30 years after Jesus was crucified. He's going to, wherever you are in your faith, you have reason to rejoice in God. Now, that's going to seem trite here in a few moments. But this is where he starts his book out. I want to read to you a proverb that many of us know and have heard before, but um, Proverbs 13, 12 says this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I have a friend who... Parents had uh, kept telling this child over and over and over again, I'm going to take you to this certain city. It was a big city. It was a city that was exciting. It was a city that this individual who was from a small southern town had never been to a city quite like this with the big lights and et cetera, the culture that was there. Parents told me, we're going to take you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you. I'm going to take you. And this child, as they were growing up over and again, longing to go to this city, partly because they just wanted to be with their parents and their Longing to go to this city every year, the hope they heard they were going. We're going to go. We're gonna, I'm going to take you. I'm going to get you there. Every year that went by, there was just a little bit more of the heart that got sick. That hope was deferred over and over and over and over again. Now, it was a promise that was made. But it was a promise that had not yet been realized. And when a promise is not yet realized, there's the natural tendency in all of us to get sick. To state it another way, to lose hope, 
The proverb is very, very correct. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Do you have something that you are waiting on God to fulfill a promise in you for? Do you have something that you have been praying for over and again that you are eagerly, expectantly waiting for? You believe he is going to do it. You have every reason to believe he's going to do it, but he still hasn't done it yet. The natural tendency for all of us is for our hearts to get sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but the proverb goes on to say this, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A longing that we have that is fulfilled by God, that becomes now not just something that that sickens us, not something that, uh, that makes us ill. It is actually... This, this tree of life that provides shade. It provides sustenance. It provides a whole lot of the. It brings life rather than sucking the life out of us. So contrast that. Go back into your life. Could it have happened this week? It may have happened last month. Maybe last year. I don't know when it was. But the last time in which you were praying with expectation. God, I know that you're going to do this. I get a sense that you're calling me to labor in prayer. I think that you won't let me off the hook. I'm going to keep going. You pray, you pray, you pray. And then there comes that time in which it is fulfilled. What goes on in your heart? Have you ever kept a prayer journal, even for a season? I used to keep prayer journals just when I would take mission trips. Regardless of where it was, whether it was a local trip or whether it was an overseas trip, I, I used to keep this journal, and, and, the, and then I decided to keep a journal with a few, um, a few areas of life that I thought would be, uh, be helpful to do. In a prayer journal, you have the advantage of this. Here's the request that I want to make, and then over here you go, here's the date in which the request was granted a yes. My mom's Bible is filled with those notes. And when I go back and read some of those journals and I see I was praying for this, and Lord, this is when you did I'm able to go back in time and remember that moment when I, when I knew it was fulfilled. Oh, what went on in my heart. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled, man, it's a tree of life. Peter is writing to this group of people, and what he's going to start out with is a a promise of God. Now, he's writing about this promise, and keep in mind, he's writing, again, some 30 years after Jesus had died. So we're looking at around roughly 2,000 years ago. The promise is that Jesus is coming, and when Jesus comes, everything is going to be made right, and all the longings and deepest yearnings and desires of your soul are going to be fulfilled. How many generations have gone without that being fulfilled just yet? So how do we not stay in this perpetual state of hope being deferred? How do we not stay in a place where the world that we live in does not match mentally in our minds what is in the world to come? And it shouldn't because it doesn't match. How do we we look forward to what is coming without getting sickened of what is taking place right now? It's what Peter's going to write the rest of the book about. He's going to give us just... Just an inkling on the front end here. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
We're going to begin reading in verse 3, and we'll go all the way through 12. In honor of God's word, would you stand as we read together? He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. And you may be seated. Now, there's many ways that we could simply divide this passage up. I've got just a very uh, uh, simple way to do it. I don't think it's um, uh, simplistic, but I do think it's simple. And just looking at the various aspects of salvation. So the first part here in verses 3 to 5 is the guarantee of our salvation. We have a guarantee of our salvation. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now let me warn you. We'll spend more time here than we will on the rest of it. Because once we get towards the end, it's very, very easy to explain. This requires just a little bit more time on the front end. When Peter gets writing in here, the entirety of verses 3 through 9 is one sentence in the original language. He just gets going. He gets excited. Now, he starts it out with blessed this is a standard operating procedure for any Jewish person. This is a way in which they're going to bring a doxology or a praise to God. Jewish people would have prayed at the beginning of every day, blessed be the Lord God. What's interesting is in this passage right here in English, they, they give us the B, which is understandable. It's not actually in the Greek though. So when it says blessed be, that B is actually not there. It's implied. So the way that this would read is blessed the God or the Father God of our Lord Jesus. And I think what Peter is doing here is he's giving us two things. On the one hand, he's stating something that is simply true. It's an indicative. It indicates what is true. Blessed God. God is blessed. So on the one hand, He's just, but he's to be praised just because he is. On the one hand, it's just indicating what is true. 
On the other hand, what I think he's actually doing here is he's calling us to take part in blessing God. The praise of our lips. He's going to talk about trials here in a second, but how does he start this out? Knowing he's writing to a group of people who are desperately looking for how do we handle the difficulties of life, Peter? He starts out with, blessed the Father. Bless the Father. Where are you in life? What difficulty are you experiencing? What hardship has come your way that you did not ask for? Is it something physical? Is it something emotional, relational, psychological? Is it something at work? Is it something at home? Is it something that no one else knows about but just you and the Lord? Whatever the difficulty is that you're experiencing right now, what he's not saying is something trite. What he's not saying is, hey, just forget it and just start praising God and it's all going to go away. What he says is, in the midst of what you're going through, make your starting place worship. So maybe what some of us need to do is, as life gets difficult and as we hit our knees and in tears over the weight of what's in front of us, the first thing to do is we say, blessed be God. And sometimes when we do it, we do it in the context of a worship service and we say, woohoo, hallelujah, blessed be the Lord. And we can do that sincerely. It's a motive. Sometimes we say, blessed be the Lord. The starting point is blessed. Why? Because he is. We've said it a hundred times here before, we have to get into the practice, develop the discipline of not making judgments about God based on the experiences of our day, but rather we must make judgments on the experiences of our day based on the truth of who God is. Blessed, blessed be, praise the God and Father. Now, what are we going to praise him for? If he goes on in here in verse 3 to tell us this, it's according to his great mercy. We can praise, it's ultimately going to be because of our salvation, but our salvation comes in essence because of his great mercy. John MacArthur, I think, offers one of the most insightful comments that I've heard in many, many years. I heard this a few weeks ago. I wrote it down. I think it's good just to give to you. Listen to this. He talks about the difference between grace and mercy. And on the large scale, you can simply uh, divide it up this way. Grace is is getting something that we do not deserve. Uh, Mercy is not getting something that we do deserve. In some ways, that's overly simplistic, but it's helpful. But listen to what John MacArthur has to say, because I think this is profoundly insightful. Grace is a term that applies in the category of guilt. Mercy is a term that applies in the category of misery. Grace for our guilt, mercy for our misery. He goes on to say this, God gives us grace by forgiving our sin. 
God gives us mercy by relieving the consequences of our sin, which is our profound soul misery. He gives us grace by forgiving us our sins, but he gives us mercy when he takes the effects of sin that it has on our minds and our hearts, and he extends to us all that we need in that moment to be relieved of misery. I don't have to illustrate this too deeply, but but go back in a time in which you know you sinned against someone and it caused that other person a great deal of harm. That emotionally speaking, for a moment at least, you wrecked them. It's one thing to know that God forgives you of that sin. That's good. But does that relieve the pain and the shame that you experience when you get to see what they're actually going through? Because maybe when you said what you said or did what you did, you didn't really understand the the impact it was going to have on them. But when you saw it, then that weight hit you, didn't you? Shame hit you. What do we need at that point? We need God's mercy. In the scriptures, there was a gentleman who was ostracized. set apart, the religious community, treated him as a second-class citizen. And he makes his way up to Jesus, and he only he just simply says this, have mercy on me. Jesus tells a story of two people that had prayed. One rather proud of his righteousness, praying, thank you that I'm not like this dude over here. And the other guy who understood the weight of his sin, felt the weight of it, just simply said this, have mercy on me, sinner. Mercy comes for those who are in misery. Are you in misery? There's hope. And the hope is, is that you're not just going to forget about it. The hope is there's a God who will visit you in your misery, and he will comfort you. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. One last thing here on mercy. We sang it earlier today, this morning. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. No matter how many times you and I go before the Lord and sin, against him, against others. Every single day, there are new mercies available from God. You cannot out the cross. We have been born again into a living hope. Born again has to do with the spiritual awakening that takes place within us. God causes us to come to life spiritually. We go from spiritual darkness to spiritual light, from spiritual death to spiritual life. He does that work, and he says we're born into a living hope. Now, this hope is contrasted uh, with a feudal hope that was being experienced by the world. Here's what he basically means. 
There is a hope that we all may have in certain outcomes that will take place. There are hopes and dreams that we may have. Some of those dreams may even be realized. It's a message that's going around the world right now incessantly. If you can think it, you can become it. If you just work hard enough, you'll achieve it. Just go after your dreams. I'm not against people going after their dreams. What I want to warn you is this. Oftentimes, even if you do catch your dreams, guess what's going to happen? Those dreams are going to die. At the very least, they're going to die with you when you die. And so you may experience something fantastic for a moment. Great. But that hope is ticking. It's got an end date to it. He says that we have a living hope, a living hope both because Jesus Christ came out of the grave. He overcame death itself. And so all hope that is placed in him is always going to be living because he is living. He is eternal. He doesn't have an expiration date. Therefore, all hope that is in him is eternal. It springs eternal. On the one hand, it's, it's a living hope because it's in Jesus. On the other hand, though, it's not dead. It's in something that goes past you. It's not reliant upon you. It's a living hope because it will grow and increase even as time goes on. One of the things that I'm challenged by, by my father right now, is um, that I hear him with a great deal of regularity say, I am looking forward to being with Jesus. And while I would say that, and I mean that with sincerity, there's still a lot of things here that I, I, I want to do. I want to see my kids grow up in every sense of the word. I want to see grandbabies. I want to have the privilege of doing to their children what my parents did to my children. And that is to come in and sugar them up and hyper them up and then leave. I want to spoil them right now. I want to grow old with Judith. I want to take some more vacations. I really do want to minister to some more people. I want to see some more people come to faith in Jesus. My list over here has not been matched over here. All the names have not been crossed off. <laughs> There's a lot of other things. I would, I'm challenged by the fact that my dad, he really is in a place in life where he'll be as faithful as God gives him in a, a breath to breathe. He really wants to be with Jesus. Some of you know what he experiences. Some of you feel the same way. My father has this growing, increasing yearning to be in the presence of his Savior. It's a living hope. Not a dead hope. And here's why hope in that mysteriously actually causes his heart to come even more alive, not sickened. Somehow or another, God, when our hope is placed in him and what he has promised and what is to come, somehow or another, he increases our appetite and our longing for it. Had a wedding last night and a great wedding. Maggie, I'm here on staff. Some of you were even there. Some of that food at the beginning, the appetite was so stinking good. 
There was a red velvet donut that I knew was, was wrong. It was sinful. But I, I sense God saying, it's okay. Some of the cheeses were fantastic. I, I nibbled on some things. And then what happened was I happened to go by where the main course was. And I got to whiff the food. And I went, whew, donuts are good. But what is this? We get some appetizers here on earth. But the main course, the main meal of being in God's presence constantly. Oh man, that does something in our souls. He says that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says it's to an inheritance. Now look at this. That is imperishable, undefiled, and even unfading. Imperishable, it will not die undefiled. It is without any impurity whatsoever, unfading. It will never grow old, both in its essence, but also in our joy and experience of it. Meaning this, we will never, ever grow bored in heaven. It will always be a new adventure. There will always be more to learn and to discover. We've said this before. You remember those great days when you were just dating and you were learning everything about this person? There was something new every single day. This is the coolest person that has ever existed. After you're married for, Judith and I, it's 26 years. After you're married for 25 years, you think, I'm not sure there's a whole lot more to discover from this person. But there is. And it's a deeper kind of a love. It's a deeper kind of appreciation. In heaven, it'll be a both and. And the inheritance that is to come, there'll be this constant level of discovery, even discovering things about God himself, about his ways. But there'll also be this deeper kind of love and appreciation where you've got this history. You see all that he has done on our behalf and you just say, oh, I'm so grateful for it. This inheritance is the eternal life of joy, bliss, peace, satisfaction, etc. that we will experience with God. It is working, it is relating, it is playing, etc. all to the glory of God. When he uses the term inheritance in here, everyone who was reading this had to be thinking about the inheritance that was spoken of in the Old Testament to Abraham. There was to be this land that was going to be given to them. And they got a chance to go into the land for just a little bit, and then they were driven out of the land. They were driven out of the land because of their disobedience. And they didn't get a chance to get it back in the same way. They're still waiting on getting it back. The contrast is obvious and remarkable. He is writing about an inheritance in a land that is to come, the new Jerusalem that will make its way down, the new heavens and the new earth, the new city that is promised to us. And it will be without any blemish whatsoever. The people were waiting to get into this land that was promised to them. Again, they got there for a little bit, had to go back. They're waiting to get back. The land, the inheritance that we're all waiting for, that these folks were is coming. It's coming, but it's not yet here. He says, it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's kept in heaven right now. It's kept 
by God's power, meaning there's nothing that can overcome it, and it's being guarded through faith. Now, listen to this, for a salvation that is ready to be revealed. There are three different types of salvation. They're all interrelated, but they're distinct ones that are spoken of in the scriptures. There's the salvation that happens, that happened for us in the past. When we came to faith in Christ, we were saved from the penalty of sin. We were saved. We no longer have to worry about being saved from that. Our souls have been redeemed. We will not experience hell. All who have come to faith in Jesus Christ will not experience an eternity separated from God. They are saved from the penalty of sin. We are currently, followers of Jesus, are currently being saved from the power of sin. Meaning that we are growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus and God continues to mold us and shape us. The Holy Spirit brings the power of Jesus to us. We get a chance to resist sin, to, to uh, participate in righteous living. So we are being saved currently. We will be saved in the future. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. We have been saved from the penalty. We are being saved from the power. We will be saved from the presence of sin. When Peter is writing this, he's writing to a group of people who are experiencing the presence of sin. And he's saying, I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. I know there are things in your life right now, but I'm telling you, the place to start with is to go back to what God has done, is doing, and will do. The best way to handle the difficulties of life is not by trying to work harder, to be tougher, to ignore it more, to push things to the side, to shove them down. That's not the best way to handle difficulties in life. The best way to handle trials in life is first to step into the presence of God. Where you currently are, maybe your faith is large, maybe it's so tiny you're not even sure you have faith. To step in and say, praise be to God. For what? for all that you have done. And I choose to believe that what you have told me in the scriptures is true, and so I'm going to interact with you as if it's true, that there is this time that is coming in which I'm going to be finally freed from all of sin. Peter says, start here. In this, he says in verse 6, you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I want to point out to you very, very quickly just some things he says in here in verses uh, 6 and even 7. He says, trials at times are needed. He uses the term, if necessary. If it is needed we will experience a trial. Please, please hear this. If you have a trial of some sort in your life, it is because God has determined that at this moment in time, you need it. You may not want it. If you did want it, you're probably weird. But the infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-wise, compassionate, gracious, loving, God says, right now, you need it. 
So don't run from it. Run to God with it. At times, trials are needed. The other thing he says in here, trials are varied. He uses the word various, which actually literally means variegated or many colored. There's no one size fits all kind of a trial. And just because we have experience in walking faithfully through one type of trial doesn't mean we're automatically going to experience that same level of faithfulness in another type of trial. And just because we fail in one type of trial doesn't mean we're necessarily going to fail in every other type of trial. Each one is unique and varied. God brings them to us in a variety of ways. It says also here that trials are hard. Notice he says um, uh, uh, we're going to experience uh, grief You have been grieved. Have you ever been around someone who uh, uh, tries to fake it through a trial? Well, you know, times are hard right now, but God is good. I'm so thankful for this trial. Peter said, "Don't, don't do that. It's okay to be excited about what God is going to do in the midst of it, but but, but don't don't over-spiritualize it. Grieve it. It's okay. Life is hard. At times, life come to the Lord with your tears. Last thing he says about it is trials are temporary. They do not last forever. Notice that he says in here that they are there for a little while. Though now for a little while, you may have to go through it. Warren Wearsby says, Something profoundly helpful. He says, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock. But if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. Go to the Lord with your trial. Now, the rest of this I can give in two minutes. Verse 7, he tells us that We can take joy in salvation because we know that God will grow our faith in him. He talks about this purifying process, this genuine faith, that there is a process he's referring to that was the same as as gold and silver that would be put through a fiery trial in the furnace. The purpose of the fiery trial was so that the impurities might be brought out and the gold might be even stronger, more resilient. He says our faith, when it is put through various types of trials, it is not put through a test so that God will discover where we stand. It's not there so that God can give us some sort of a grade. Well, McNeely's got a C minus on this one. It is there so that we go through this trial so that the impurities in me will come out. They'll get confessed. They'll get talked about with God. He will then make my faith genuine even more Um, uh, reliable. He will make it so that it is stronger in the process. God is taking out more of me so that all really that is remaining is him. Your faith is tested. It's going to get hard. And it's going to be for testing. So not so that God can figure out where you are. He knows where you are. So that ultimately you will be stronger in time. In verses eight through nine, he says that We can rejoice in our salvation because we know that God will grow even our love for him. The main point in the verse here is is clear. Those believers who suffer are not intended to be crushed into the ground, 
by their sorrows and troubles and actually intended to come closer and closer to Jesus. Now, finally, in verses 10 through 12, he talks about the mystery of salvation. And he says this, the prophets of old did not know that there was going to be this need for Jesus, for God in the flesh to come and for him to suffer in the way that he did. They didn't know it required the suffering of God. But there in verse 12, it tells us that the Old Testament prophets, they saw it from afar and they knew what their particular role was. Their role was to put some things down on paper for a generation that was to come. And so Peter's saying this, hey, we have a huge advantage over those who heard directly from the Lord through a spoken voice audibly because we have the totality of the scriptures. We know how the story ends. The Old Testament prophets were prophesying about something that was promised of God. It has yet to come. It was going to happen. It was a promise that was yet fulfilled. We have the opportunity to look back and see that God fulfilled his promises in the Old Testament. Now, we stand in a day and age in which we're in the New Testament, and there are promises that have been given that have yet to be fulfilled. So in the same way, we can look back and see all of his promises that were fulfilled in the Old Testament. We can take joy and hope knowing that God will keep his word. And he says something interesting right there at the end that even the angels long to look into this. I won't go into this. Here's what I think he's referring to. Even the angels are enamored with salvation. Now, why is that? There's no salvation for the fallen angels. The angels themselves are looking with awe and mystery over, oh my goodness, God, you went after them. They will never get to experience what we got to experience, and that is a God who steps down from his throne, who places on human flesh, becomes one of us while not losing any of his godness, 100% God, 100% man, lives the life that we should have lived but could not live, died the death that we should have died but now don't have to die. Jesus does this for a people who will never even love him in the way that he loves us. The angels say, oh my, it's a mystery. Why would God do this? <laughs> because he's a God of mercy. It's who he is. Praise be to Jesus. The rest of the book is fleshing out what he gives us in principle right here. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, and yes, your mercy that you've given to us. Father, I ask that you would take our minds and our hearts and, and you would center them in specifically on your son. Lord, would you uh, give us the ability to see, to hear, um, but then also to act in light of what it is that you have done. We trust you. We are grateful for you. We love you. Um, not nearly like you love us, but we really do love you. We praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.